I want to ask you a question as we're taking the tithes and offerings. I'm going to jump right into the message this morning. Here's the question. What's the last thing you would say if you knew it was the last thing you could say? What's the last thing you would say if you knew it would be the last thing that you would say? When people have time to think about that question, everyone concludes that, well, I want it to be the most important thing that I could say. I watched a uh, YouTube video uh, online and someone had posed that question and people answered it by holding up a card, a placard of something they had written and right across the board, everybody said, I love you, Mom. I love you, Dad. I'm sorry for my mistakes. I love you. I wish I said it more often. You're the most important person to me. And as I was watching, I'm thinking, why is it that things like that get verbalized at the end of life? when they are the things that should actually define life. A preacher, I heard a preacher one time get up and preach, and he, he said, I want my wreath now. You know, at a funeral, you bring flowers and you have wreaths. I wonder what would happen if I just broke out and started doing a break dance. I mean, it seems like when I move, it does that. We would have all kinds of rap noises going on. And so his message was basically, I want my wreath now. You know, when people pass, that's when we say what a great person they were. And he was making the point Bless me now while I'm with you. Tell me now that I've made an impact on your life. Um, and he was illustrating the point of how important it is to verbalize uh, our feelings and our sentiments. So what would you say if you knew it was going to be the last thing that you would say? I remember as a little boy, my father would often tell the story. His dad was a, a, a very spiritual man. Unfortunately, he died when my dad was only 11, so I never got to meet him. But in Italy, he was among the first spirit-filled believers, and he had organized adult uh, Sunday schools throughout the country and was writing curriculum. And um, he knew exactly when he was going to die. He, uh, my father would often tell the story, he knew the day and the hour. And so he had called all of his family and closest friends in the church to be in the house. And uh, he, he shared his parting words. And then he asked everyone to bow their head and pray. And as they prayed, he went to be with the Lord. My father 
told me a story of how in the church in Australia, I was now working among Australian churches. My father was pastoring the Italian church, and there was a young lady who uh, had cancer, fought cancer, uh, was having chemo, et cetera, et cetera. And during her own battle with cancer, she became a volunteer and would go to the children's hospital and would minister to the children in the hospital who were also suffering from cancer. She had such a gracious and beautiful spirit. I knew her personally. I knew the whole family. Um, and she passed away around the age of 21, 22 years old. But the last day, she knew when she was going. And she arranged for her mother, her father, and her sister and her family to come in one by one and sit in the room with her and she would share final words with them. I think it would be true that every one of us, if we knew these would be our last moments, we would want to put great significance on the words that we share. If I took a quick quick survey or poll, a show of hands here. How many of you agree you would want to say something really important the last time you opened your mouth? Absolutely. And having said that, I want to take you to the book of Malachi because Malachi is the close of the Old Testament and it's the last thing that God had to say for approximately 400 years before the new covenant came into existence. And so I think Malachi is a very significant book. Malachi means the messenger. And I find it fascinating that this is the last book of the whole Old Testament. And I love the book of Malachi, not because... Uh, chapter 3 talks about tithes and offerings. Unfortunately, most people only know about tithes and offerings, only know about Malachi because of that passage in tithes and offerings. One of the most quoted scriptures. And yet, and I'll have to do it sometime, if you take the book of Malachi, Malachi is actually a handbook on revival. It's a preparation for revival. And Malachi talks to the priests, he talks to uh, the attitudes of the day, the condition of the heart, and it's all about prepping and preparing for when the refiner's fire would come, when the launderer's soap would be present. Uh, and it, he prepares people. In actuality, in hindsight, he was preparing them for the coming of Jesus Christ. And in the very last chapter, which is chapter 4 of Malachi, and today we're going to look at the last uh, three verses. <clears throat> Hello? Okay. Now this is going to be a juggling act. We're going to concentrate on the last chapter and the last three verses because obviously God knew 400, 500 years of silence was about to come before the introduction of himself in the form of a man. 
And so I think the last things that God had to say would have been very important. Just like the book of Revelation is very important. And so Malachi chapter 4, verse 4 to 6, this is what he says. Remember the law of my servant Moses, the decrees and the laws that I gave him at Horeb for all Israel. When you read that, you think, hmm, okay. So we're going to go into legalism, remember all the laws of my servant Moses. And then I think immediately in my mind and my spirit shoots forward to something that Jesus said, and that's in Matthew chapter 22, verse 34 to 40. And I'm going to read it to you. It says, hearing that Jesus had silenced the Sadducees, there were two religious parties. There was the Pharisees and the Sadducees. And uh, Jesus had just said some things to the Sadducees that sort of shut them up. And the Pharisees were like, yeah, that's great. Seeing that he had silenced the Sadducees, the Pharisees got together. And one of them, an expert in the law, tested him with this question. Teacher, what is the greatest commandment in the law? And Jesus replied, love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and all your mind. This is the first and the greatest commandment, and the second is like it. Isn't that interesting? Love God with all your heart, and the second one is very much like the first one. Love your neighbor as yourself. Now look at verse 40. All the law and the prophets... Everything the Old Testament is about, everything regarding the law of Moses and the things that the prophets came to set in order, all the law and the prophets hang on these two things. Two things. Number one, love God. And that's always first. And number two, love yourself and love others. It's interesting that Malachi in his Third to last verse says, Remember the law of my servant Moses, the decrees and laws that I gave him at Horeb for all of Israel. And it's interesting because the summation of all the law is about loving God and about loving yourself and about loving others. You see, all that God came to reveal was what got broken in the Garden of Eden, and in the Garden of Eden, relationship got sabotaged, and God is all about restoring and healing relationship. And then if you read verse 5 and verse 6, he goes on and he says, See, I will send the prophet Elijah to you before the great and dreadful day of the Lord comes. Now let me just pause here for a second. The great and dreadful day of the Lord is a very specific term that's used throughout the Old Testament. I'm getting feedback, guys. I think it's the uh, foldbacks on the stage, so if you could X them. Um, the great and terrible day of the Lord is a very specific time period. You have the year of God's favor, which is the dispensation or the period of time we're living in right now. 
Right now, we're, looking, we're living in the year of God's favor. What does that mean? We're living in a time period where God wants to bless us. We're living in a time period of grace. We're living in a time period where the blessings of God are ours. The year of God's favor. The prophet said, in the year of God's favor, the blind will see, the deaf will hear, and the lame will leap. But then the, year, the day of the Lord is the time right after the year of God's favor, and it'll be a time of quick judgment on the whole earth. It's when... Everything will center around the Valley of Armageddon and that last final showdown between God and everyone who has been rebellious against God. And so he's setting the framework here, and I want you to see, not only are these the last words he has to say, he's talking about the last moment on planet Earth before Jesus becomes the ultimate ruler of the earth once again. He says, See, I will send the prophet Elijah to you before that great and dreadful day of the Lord. He will turn the hearts of the parents. Now, a lot of translations say the hearts of the father. The word in the Hebrew there is ab, A-B. And it is the very first word listed in Strong's analytical concordance. And it literally means father or patriarch, but it could loosely refer to parentage. And so he says uh, that the coming of the prophet, he will turn the hearts of the parents or the fathers to their children and the hearts of the children to their parents or else I will come and strike the land with total destruction. What amazes me is that from beginning to end, what God really is about is relationship. What's amazing to me is that God, aside from all the rules and the regulations, is actually about you and Him. Intimacy. How this relationship is broken down in uh, bite-sized pieces. God is all about relationship. God so loved the world that he couldn't stay in heaven. God so loved the world that he didn't want to know you as a creation. He wanted to know you as a son. God so loved the world that he had to get down here and get dirty and beat up and be rejected so that he could have a firsthand relationship with Barbara. God so loved the world that he took on our mess and got covered up in the mess of this world so that he could set us free and be a daddy to every one of us and have a father-child relationship. You see, everything about God is about relationship. Everything about this Bible is about healing and restoring and bringing us back to the heart of God. Religion makes it about rules. 
We think of the law of Moses and we think of all the do's and the don'ts. And really, Jesus said, if you were to sum up everything that Moses wrote in the law, and if you were to sum up everything that the prophets were about, it was about how we treat each other, how we love or respect or don't respect ourselves, whether or not we respect widows, whether or not we respect orphans, whether or not we love foreigners, and how we relate to God. I think it's amazing that the last, yeah, give him a, I think it's, it's a testimony of the heart and the character of God that the very last thing he says before 400 years of absolute silence, which is broken by God modeling for us a father and son relationship. But in that 400 years of silence, his last words to the house of Israel is, relationship is of utmost importance, and unless the hearts of the children are turned back to the parents, and the hearts of the parents turn to the children, unless that happens, a great curse is going to come on the earth. What intrigues me even more is that then it's immediately followed 400 years later, God sets up a model relationship to show us how a father and how a son interact and relate. You see, yes, God became flesh so that he could die on the cross. But in doing that, how many of you have ever done something, but there were several purposes behind what you did? God is so multifaceted and so dimensional that everything God has has layers of purpose and reason. And when God became flesh and became Jesus, yes, he did that to stand in the darkness of where we have lived to stand in the hurt and the brokenness of what we've experienced, to identify with us, to heal us, to draw us to himself, and to die on the cross to be that ultimate sacrifice. But while he lived on earth, he constantly modeled a relationship between a father and a son. Let me, let, let me just read a couple of things that Jesus said. In John chapter 5, verse, sorry, yeah, John chapter 5, verse 19 to 20, Jesus gave them this answer. I tell you the truth, the son can do nothing by himself. He can do only what he sees his father doing. Because whatever the father does, the son does also. For the Father loves the Son and shows him all he does. Now, I know it goes on and it says, yes, and he will show him even greater works than these so that you will be amazed. But I want you to look at something. For the Father loves the Son and shows him all he does. This is about relationship. This is a model of an excellent father and an excellent son relationship. And every one of us are parents here today in some way. Well, some of us aren't parents yet, but we plan to be. 
But every one of us have had relationship with parents and, or our parents. And either those relationships have been healthy and wholesome and good, or they've detracted from us. And the point is that the relationships we have here on life often get projected on our image of God the Father. And the enemy understands that God always intended to be a father and not just a creator. And so the first thing he does is to wreck relationships because in wrecking relationships, we have broken men, we have broken women, and therefore we cast an image of a broken father and a broken mother. And when we relate to God, the enemy knows that we will project All of our hurts. Isn't it interesting that the enemy sets things up so that we project our wounds and our hurts and our bruises and our worst memories and all of our bitter experiences, we project it on God to separate us from God. That's what the enemy does. But amazingly, God takes all of our sin and all of our mistakes and projects it on himself and nails himself to the cross so that he could set us free and break the dividing wall between mankind and God himself. The enemy wants you to see God in the worst possible light. And he wants you to take offense at God the same way he manipulated Adam and Eve to take offense at God in the Garden of Eden. I'm going to make a statement here. We've all been offended. Raise your hand if you've never been offended. Raise your hand if you've never been offended. Good. Because I was about to take offense that, I'm the, that you were the only person who's never been offended. Let me share something about the spirit of offense. There are two types of fences. Both of them have a demonic spirit behind it. There is the offense where someone can wound you and hurt you and scar you and bruise you. Raise your hand if you've had an offense like that. Come on, be honest with me. If we wave our hands like this, we would create some air conditioning right now. There are so many hands raised up. There's the offense that is given. But there's another kind of offense that we don't often recognize. There's the offense that is taken. Sometimes we take offense and honestly offense wasn't given. Every one of us here have had an experience in life where someone took offense at something we said and we didn't mean it the way they heard it. They totally heard it differently than what even the words we said. I know sometimes, you know, we don't put our words together correctly and it could come out wrong. But I have seen it over and over and over again in counseling and in pastoring. The exact words that were said were totally harmless and un... uh, They had no intentional harm whatsoever. And when the other person repeats what they heard... It's completely filled with barbs and daggers, and it was never said that way. 
there are two kinds of offense. The spirit of offense will make a broken person out of their own hurt, out of their own jealousy, out of their own insecurities, out of their own fears, out of their own hate, out of their own lust, out of their own anger, say things and do things that will wound you. There's a spirit behind it. But when we have been wounded, and the spirit lives in the wounds of our past hurts, I hate to say this, but it's absolutely true. We will hear through the ears of that spirit. We will see through the eyes of that spirit. We will feel through the emotions of that spirit. You see, New Age talks about channeling, but it's demonic. Because what a demon wants to do, whether it's a demon of lust, a demon of anger, a demon of insecurity, or a demon of fear, what it wants to do is so control your senses that you will see through their eyes, you will hear through their ears, and you will literally feel through their emotions. And so rejection will make you feel rejected even when people aren't rejecting you. Rejection will make you hear rejection even when people aren't saying anything at all. I've watched scenario after scenario where person A is complimenting and loving on person B and person B is hearing through the spirit of rejection and that spirit is wanting you to take offense and they're getting all hurt and all bothered and nothing but love and validation was actually spoken. Look, if you struggle with a spirit of anger, if you struggle with a spirit of lust, you will hear, you will see, you will feel, you will think through that spirit. You see, demons come so that they can channel who they are through us. But the Holy Ghost comes to make us who we were destined to be in Christ Jesus. And so the enemy constantly perverts the divine principles of God. And so he will get us to project unto God out of our wounds, out of our hurts, out of the horrible experiences of life. Whether your father abandoned you or your mother abandoned you or your father always told you you were stupid or you're an idiot. Whatever the experiences were, it could be a husband relationship, it could be a wife relationship, it could be an uncle, it could be a grandpa. But the enemy's system of control is that he will wound you in your past and then cause those wounds to be projected onto potential relationships in the future so that it's sabotaged before it has a chance to get off the ground. And the number one relationship he wants to sabotage is our relationship with Daddy God. And so the enemy will project our wounds and our hurts onto God and God says, no, let me set this into divine order. I'm going to take your wounds and your brokenness and even your sin, your own mistakes, and I choose 
to put it on myself. And I'm going to the cross because I want to kill that ugly monster. <laughs> Praise God. You see, when you understand the heart of God, you can't help but love him. It's no longer a book of rules. It's a book that reveals his heart and his mind. And you start to understand this incredible God who has such incredible love. I remember when um, I was about to become a dad the very first time. And I had decided... I said, God, I'm going to tell my kids all the time I love them. I'm going to verbalize it. I'm going to hug them. I'm going to be warm. I'm going to be affectionate. And I did that. And I had decided that, I, God, I'm going to do this so that I never put a scar or a wound inside of them. And so from the first child I was born, which was Amy, um, you know, she, she was just days old and all their lives, I have told my kids, I've hugged them, and I tell them a lot. I tell them often, I love you. I'm proud of you. I validate them. My son said to me one time, he says, Dad, if there's one thing we never have a doubt about, and that's that you love us. But you know what I found? That as a human being who's in the process of still being healed, I've still put scars and wounds in them and never intending to do so. And so sometimes we cause offense, sometimes offense is taken. You could take offense at things that you believe your father meant or your mother meant, and there can be the harsh reality where they were so broken they actually caused and brought about offense. Here's the bottom line. Are we going to live with these graven images weighing us down? Are we going to live with these images of hurt that represent our father or our mother, that represent people in our lives? Because if we hold those graven stone images of hurt and disappointment, somehow... If we don't let them go through the act of forgiveness, they remain so much a part of us internally that we, through our eyes, project that onto our Father in heaven. One of the reasons why we need to, be, we need to forgive is that when we don't forgive someone else's injury to us, we end up living with the curse of that injury and we interpret all of life through the bitterness of that hurt and it sabotages even our relationship with our Father God. Yes, sir. Isn't it incredible that in the closing pages of Malachi, God says, I want you to understand that before the great and dreadful day of the Lord, that even transcends the new covenant. He says, before that great Armageddon, before that great judgment, I'm going to be working to turn the hearts of the parents to the children and the hearts of the children to the parents. Because at the end of the day, it's about relationship. Love God first. 
love yourself and love others. Yes, this is Father's Day. And Father's Day can either bring nightmares to us or it could bring some wholesome memories. And sometimes it brings a mixture of both. But it's not just about fathers, it's about parents. And I know I, I made a vow, it was my purest intention that nothing I ever did would ever hurt or harm my kids. And I thought that by covering them with words of affirmation and hugging them, that I would put them in a bubble and they would never have a wound. I am not so naive to think that my kids don't have thoughts about when dad said this, it really cut me, or when God, dad did this, it hurt me. And I can only pray and say, God, I thank you that you're the healer of all of us. In Jesus' name. Amen. But what we can't let go of, the wounds, the bitterness, the hurt, and the unforgiveness, not only allows that spirit to vex us and torment us so that we will continually see out of the eyes of whatever the nature of that injury was, we will hear through its ears, we will feel through its emotions, but ultimately, it will come out through our eyes, and as we see him, it will always project a shadow onto him. And I believe with all my heart in this series, Judging God, that God is wanting to heal us of the relationships that have wounded us, the hurts that have bruised us. He wants to set us free from those things so that we don't keep projecting and taking offense when offense isn't giving. And he wants to set us free so that we don't give offense when really what we need to do is give grace and mercy and love. Can I get an agreement? Amen. Amen. And so I've asked the worship team, just as they were finishing the last song, if they would uh, work with me at the end of the service here. And we don't do this every Sunday. I know we did it last Sunday, but I'm going to ask the worship team to come uh, to the altar here, and we're going to sing a song that we sang last week. And the reason why I'm doing this is because I really feel that God wants to have a time of ministry. I believe that God wants to heal. I believe God wants to restore. The enemy has filled our lives with wounds and hurts so that we have carved out images of what a husband is, or what a wife is, what a mother is, what a father is. And every time we have a relationship in that vein, we come to the party with so much baggage and pre-perceived ideas that it's dead in the water before it ever has a chance to live. God wants to restore hearts of the parents to the children, 
hearts of the children, to the parents. He wants to restore relationship. I was in the prayer meeting this week, and one of the ladies in our church was sharing how when she first came to Jesus Christ, she hadn't had a great relationship with her dad. And um, I'll, I'll allow her to remain anonymous, but I know she has no trouble telling the story. And she said that as she was praying and worshiping, and she was realizing some of the negative residue of a father-daughter relationship. And she started to weep. And uh, she saw God in the picture. And she saw her father. And she had an image of what the things he would say and do. And then she had this conversation with God. And she said, God, where were you? And he said, I was there. See me on that chair? I was there. And I want you to climb up on my lap and cry your heart out. Because I loved you and I cared for you. And I want to erase all the wounds and all the hurts and all the pain. And it became a defining moment in her life. It progressively became a moment from which healing continually came to her as she moved forward in her relationship with God. The two greatest experiences in my life after being born again was one that I shared just the other week, how I was the song leader and the youth leader and a Sunday school teacher in the small church in New York. And I had rebelled against God and I went to a revival meeting and I'm expecting the evangelist to call me out with all my sin and expose me in front of everyone. That was my picture of God. I grew up in a legalistic church and God walked around with a bad temper. He talked to us about the fruit of the Spirit so that we could balance out the relationship because He always had a bad attitude. No. The picture was that God was so perfect that he was intolerant of our imperfection. God is so perfect that he is tolerant and more than tolerant. Tolerant means I'll put up with your brokenness. Understanding means move over. Let me sit down here. I get it. I understand. You see, understanding puts you in the same boat, in the same scenario. And it feels what you feel and gets it and doesn't make a judgment. So God is intolerant of our mistakes. He understands us. He gets why we misfire and how we are wrongly wired through the hurts of life. I don't know what you project onto God when you hear his name or when we worship. I don't know what little demons hide somewhere in your soul. But I know that God wants to heal us so thoroughly so that we could love Him and know how much He really loves us. Whatever your mother was, whatever your father was, whatever good, bad, indifferent, 
whatever your uncle was, your grandfather was, your grandmother. Do you understand that the last few verses of Malachi is about God wanting to heal all of that so that we don't carry baggage? Because when you carry baggage, there's some element of God that we don't have room for. He wants to heal us of the baggage so that there's nothing but honest to goodness, the love of God that we experience. Would you stand with me? We sang this song last week and I think the words are just phenomenal. Can I have the words up on the screen? I will build my life upon your love. It's a firm foundation. And I will put my trust in you alone. And I will not be shaken. For about three full weeks before I started this series, you know, the more we've been praying in the mornings, I find the, the more I'm getting messed up. I've always been a little bit of a softy, but these prayer meetings now, it's like almost 14 months of praying every morning. And I find my heart just gets so tender in His presence. I find that I'm, I weep a lot more, not because I'm sad, sometimes just because I'm happy. But about four weeks before I started this series, all I kept feeling was God's heart and how He longs to have deeper, more meaningful relationship with His kids. And I have this, a burden that I have trouble putting into words. I have this passion, this desire, this need this great want to that wants to pull back all the layers of years of hurt in each and every individual so that you won't see God through the veil anymore but so that you start to see Him as He is Moses stood in the desert and he said God I want to see what makes you so good. When he said, I want to see your glory, that's what he was saying. I want to see the essence of who you are. I want to see what makes you so fantastically wonderful. No one else had ever asked that. And God said, Moses, I'm going to hide you in the cleft of a rock, a cutout of a huge rock. I'm going to hide you in there and I'm going to cause my presence to pass over you. Symbolically, God took Moses and hid him in Christ, the cleft of the rock. And he caused all of his goodness. This is what the Bible says. He caused all of his goodness. So think of all your strengths. And whatever strengths you have, maybe there's a dozen of them. And if you were to name them, he took the essence, the spirit of that strength. Now, we might have a half a dozen or a dozen. God has got a universe filled of virtues. And the Bible says that because Moses wanted to see God, 
as God is and not through a veil and not through filters. God honored him and hid him in Christ and caused the spirit and the strength and the nature and the feeling of each one of his virtues to be like a wave washing over Moses one by one. And Moses literally had a baptism in the knowledge and in the character and in the heart of who God is. That's my prayer for me and for you. That we will see God as God is and not as the graven images that the hurts of life have carved out in our soul. Can I get an agreement? We're going to sing this song and I'm going to ask you before we leave and if you have to leave, that's okay. But I want us to spend Father God day with Him at the altar because I believe that the Holy Spirit will start to visit us. I believe He'll start to visit people. Don't don't look around as if, oh, well, what's going to happen in the service? No, I believe God's going to start coming to us as individuals and start to heal, restore, fix, and make things right. We project so much garbage because there's so much garbage and hurt inside of us. And God wants to destroy that projector. And He wants us to be able to see Him for the beauty that He is. Father, I pray that the process that you have begun, not just today, but what you have been doing in our lives all along, continue to woo us to yourself. Continue to draw us into your arms. Help us to come and not be afraid and to understand that in your presence that is the safest place we could ever be. Now Holy Spirit continue what is in God's heart to all of us. Continue what God has purposed when we leave this place tomorrow, tomorrow night, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, Holy Spirit, take each one of the children of God, the sons and daughters, and journey with them. And I thank you, Father, that through your Holy Spirit, you will transition them. You will break the barriers. You will heal the wounds. And the scars will fade away to oblivion. I thank you, Father, that for this purpose was your Son made manifest to destroy all the works, all the traces of the enemy's devastation. You've come to destroy it. 
I thank you, Father, that you became flesh and modeled a son so that you could bind up the brokenhearted and make us one in Jesus Christ. We give you the glory. So be it. We release it by the Spirit of God. Journey with Him, church. Journey with Him. The Spirit of God will call you in the wee hours of the morning, late at night, in the middle of the day. Set yourself aside when He calls and start having time with God because I believe that God is taking us on a journey of healing and restoration and ultimate redemption. Amen. 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 Well, greet each other. If this was a different culture, I would say greet each other with a holy kiss. But that's not our culture. Uh, all the men 18 and over, please go out to the front foyer and you have a choice of two great big gigantic chocolate bars. Have a happy blessed day to everyone in Jesus name. Be blessed. Be blessed, be blessed, be blessed. Amen.